Hello and welcome. You are listening to Gore and Guilty Podcast. I'm Georgia. And I'm Greg. And this week we're going to be talking about a very tragic case. I have been pre-warned, so I'm not sure whether I'm ready for it. Today we're going to be covering the Suzanne Kappa case. Isn't that right, Greg? That's correct. And there will be many, many trigger warnings in this case. I'm not even sure that I'm ready to talk through it, but we're going to give it a go. Definitely one of the most tragic and abhorrent cases that the UK has seen before. So, yeah, buckle in, everyone. Hopefully you've got like a glass of wine or something to take the edge off because this one is going to be heavy hitting. I haven't heard about this one before, so I'm intrigued to know what what it holds. I think you might have heard some of the details before just because a lot of other podcasts cover it, but it's yeah. pretty heavy hitting and it's surprisingly not that well documented in the UK. There aren't... A lot of documentaries about it. I thought there were, but there aren't. And yeah, we'll get into it. Mm. We'll get into it. Okay. Before we do that, though, how are you doing, Georgia? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, it's been a busy week. I was lucky to see another comedian this week, uh, Rob Beckett, which was absolutely hilarious. Probably the best comedian I've ever seen. He was super interactive with the audience and just so funny. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and that was at our like Swansea's new arena as well, which for people that don't really know Swansea, like it's definitely on its way up. Bless it, it kind of like didn't really have much going for it, but um now we've got this new arena. It doesn't feel like Swansea when you're in it, but it's definitely gonna bring some new acts this end of the world. So that's gonna be good. But yeah, this week's been good. It's beautiful weather here in the UK. Um yeah, visiting friends and things like that. How about you? How have you been? I've been good. I went to the market this morning. I got some fruit and veg and yeah, I'm not hung over on a Sunday for once, which feels great for me, despite going <laughs> to Bristol yesterday, which is another part of the UK and having a few beers in the sun with some friends. I managed to not overdo it, which is uncharacteristic for me. So, <laughs> Knowing your limits. <laughs> I knew my limits yesterday. But other than that, uh nothing to report really the just a pretty bog standard week and yeah it's been good it's been good 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 so we did wake up to some pretty tragic news this morning uh, there was another shooting a mass shooting in new york uh, yes. georgia you you've been reading about this this uh, tragedy unfolding right Yes, I have. So it's happened at Buffalo in New York and a 18-year-old went in and it was racially motivated and he has killed 10 people with three additional people that have been injured. Um, so we really, really hope these people, the three people, you know, make a speedy recovery. Our hearts go out to them. It must be so scary and so it's just so tragic. And it just, I wish these things didn't happen and they just seemed to keep on happening. But it seemed as though there were signs that he was going to be doing this attack. Um, it was reported by teachers and the law enforcement were aware. And it seemed as though there wasn't much that they could do on their end because he hadn't committed any offence. He had just thought about it and unfortunately it has now taken place. So yeah, as we mentioned before, our hearts go out to all those all the victims and families and friends that knew them. A terrorist attack, basically. Yes. But a racially motivated one. It's awful that these things seem to keep happening in America, these mass shootings. He was fully equipped with um, military armour, basically, like hat, um, a protective vest, and a security guard that was there at the supermarket 
who was an ex-police officer, he did attempt to shoot at him, but because he was wearing this protective vest, it didn't harm him. And he then actually was shot in consequence for this. So it's there's so many levels to this. It's just so tragic. Awful. Awful. But after that... <laughs> well, it's not going to get much better. I'm telling you, this case is going to be heavy hitting. So uh, let's, go, let's talk about Suzanne Kappa. Yes, let's do it. As I've mentioned several times already, today's case is particularly hard-hitting. It is intensely graphic, so bad that I know for sure I'm going to be uncomfortable reading certain parts out, so please bear with me. Oh, gosh. We are doing the case of Suzanne Kappa's brutal torture, kidnapping, and murder. Before I get stuck into this, let me lay down several trigger warnings. We're going to be talking about kidnap, an extremely violent assaults, as well as an element of mental torture and other dreadful things that it's hard to imagine human beings doing to one another. If that sounds a bit too rich for you, then no problem, just join us next week. Yeah, absolutely. You're not convinced you're familiar with this one, right Georgia? No, I don't think I've heard of it. It may be, that, like you said, that there'll be some elements of it that kind of trigger some memories, but I, I don't think I do. No, I don't think I have heard of it. Despite how crazy this case is, it took place two months before James Bolger was killed. James Bolger was, a, I believe, a a very young child killed by two other young children and also tortured by them. I think probably the proximity and the dates of these crimes meant that there was a lot more attention on the James Bolger case. And Suzanne Kappa's awful case maybe uh, wasn't as prominent. Yeah. But there's a lot of podcasts that have done this already so that's why i think you might have heard a few of the details maybe then yeah maybe but yeah the james bolger case it that did it was so widespread and so public um that yeah maybe that kind of overshadowed it unfortunately during like the timeline but um but yeah that was quite that's a very prominent case interestingly there are a lot of similarities between the two cases as well really we haven't done the james bolger case before but yeah there there are a lot of similarities obviously it's a completely different type of victim and a different type of perpetrators too but both cases were used uh, in the 90s to kind of depict uh, how dreadful the welfare system was in the uk and this kind of depravity but basically a lot of media outlets would use these cases as a way to convey that there were serious issues with depravity in the for people that were using the welfare state in the UK it was it was pretty bad time all around the other thing I was going to say was that um with the James Bolger case I think it's also used as an example with like criminology criminal justice when you're in education learning about it because it's children on children violence and it's quite like that was quite a unique case um in that respect so it's kind of used as an example of how do you manage it they're underage and you know the age of responsibility did they know what they were doing so it's also used on that side of things that psychological aspect yeah absolutely and then also similar to the james bolger case there was a chance to save suzanne kappa that wasn't taken and you know there's a i think it's called like the bolger 38 or bolger 34 or something where there were 34 people that witnessed the two children with james bolger james bolger was crying and there's a lot of People that point to that and say, well, why wasn't he able to be rescued? Why wasn't anyone saying anything? Yeah. So yeah, that that could explain why 
uh, this case isn't one that you've come across for sure before. Yeah. On the 14th of December, 1992, a 16-year-old Suzanne Kapper clambered up an embankment before traipsing almost a quarter of a mile. She was clinging on to her life. What remained of her charred and peeling skin was covered in scars that only gave a small hint about the horrific abuse and torture that Suzanne had suffered over the past week. Oh my gosh. Suzanne had experienced inhumane subjugation at the hands of people she had previously considered to be friends over a trivial grievance. Oh. Let's go to the beginning. I did say it'd be hard-hitting, right? Jumping straight into the deep end. Suzanne Kappa was born in Manchester, northern England, in 1976. According to a quote in the Times, Suzanne was apparently a gentle but easily influenced young girl. Suzanne's home life wasn't amazing. At 14, she was placed into the care of social services after her mother and stepfather had split up. The split of her family and Suzanne's placement into care led to her frequently playing truant from school, basically missing multiple days at a time. This is important because during Suzanne's eventual kidnap, and when people wondered how this was able to happen, there are a lot of question marks about why no one rose the alarm for her missing so many days of school consecutively. Yeah. When she was younger, Suzanne used to be babysat by a woman called Jean Powell. During Suzanne's years of shaky school attendance, she found herself spending a lot of time at the home of Jean Powell at 97 Langworthy Road. Jean would deal drugs and peddle stolen vehicles from the house that Suzanne visited, so this wasn't a great environment for a young teenager. No, not at all. Suzanne's sister, Michelle, briefly lived with Powell, but she moved out because she didn't like the unsavoury characters that Powell would associate with. When Michelle moved out, a woman named Bernadette McNeely moved into the Langworthy Road, Road home. Also, there's a lot of names in this case. That's because there's a lot of people involved with this crime. Okay. But Jean Powell, Bernadette McNeely, those two are definitely worth remembering. Okay, good to know. When Bernadette McNeely moved in, she even brought her three children with her into the Victorian terraced home. So I imagine it was pretty cosy. Suzanne would continue to go round and stay at 97 Langworthy Roads with Bernadette and Jean. However, after Bernadette had moved in, the dynamic changed and the two older women would often bully Suzanne. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and also it's kind of crazy to think, right, like a 16-year-old going round to spend time with two women in their mid-twenties and they're just yeah. bullying her. It's... Like she's super young, like it's super cowardly. I don't understand that when, when you hear about situations like that where she's so much younger, like she's in her teenage years and you're older, you should know better. Like what what are you doing? <laughs> Could you imagine, like, a 16-year-old coming to your house and then you just spending the whole time just berating her and being, you know, violent sometimes? It's horrible. Hard to imagine already. Yeah. This house sounds like a crazy place. Gene Powell's ex-husband would often visit from his nearby home and he'd have sex with Gene and apparently even Bernadette too. Okay. Jean Powell's ex-husband, by the way, is called Glyn Powell, and it's worth remembering his name too. Okay. Even more bizarre, despite being 23, 
Bernadette was in a relationship with a 16-year-old called Anthony Dudson. Right, okay. So, for people that don't know, in the UK, 16 is the legal age, because I know it's, it varies around the world. But even so, it's kind of weird. Very, very weird. 23-year-old yeah. woman and a 16-year-old guy does not compute. No. But Dudson would often visit the home and have sex with both Bernadette and Jean. Right. Furthermore, there were several other visits to the home, often from amphetamine addicts that the women would have sex with and sell drugs to. This is not the environment that... Uh, she Was Suzanne 14 at the time, did you say? 14? 16. 16. 16. Yeah, this isn't an environment where she needs to be. There are six children in this house as well. Three for Bernadette oh and three for Jean. Oh... Not okay, very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like one just ongoing orgy. Yeah. Oh. Trigger warning on, I don't know, just gross sex diseases. Uh, yeah. <laughs> unsurprisingly, all this sex and what I imagine was a very dirty house led to all these people getting pubic lice. Oh, okay. <laughs> this, believe it or not, was one of the leading reasons for Suzanne Kappa's kidnap and murder. <gasps> really? Interesting. Seems weird to think that that could be a motivator for anything criminal, but there you go. Yeah. In the trial, it was said that when Bernadette's 16-year-old boyfriend discovered he had pubic lice, Bernadette told him that it was Suzanne Kappa that had brought the lice into the home. Oh. Her boyfriend, Anthony Dudson didn't actually believe it and told Jean that he felt it was more likely he got the lice from his girlfriend Bernadette. Yeah. But I guess just by consistently being reinforced, he ended up being willing to blame Suzanne too. And I suppose we have to remember that he is 16 also and these women are far older. And when you're that age, you can be quite impressionable by people that are older and you kind of end up believing them. Absolutely, yeah, he's certainly not reached a point of maturity, you'd imagine. Okay, now, trigger warning, as this is where things begin to take a horrific turn. After deciding as a group that Suzanne was responsible for bringing the pubic lice into the home, they decided to lure her to the house. On the 7th of December 1992, Suzanne was living with her stepfather, Jean and Bernadette knocked on the door and led Suzanne back to Jean's house, 97 Langworthy Road. Jean's ex-husband, Glyn, and Bernadette's teenage boyfriend, Anthony Dudson, were waiting. Suzanne was grabbed as soon as she walked through the door. Oh my gosh. Last trigger warning. Glyn Powell shaved her head, her eyebrows, before making her clean up her own hair. What? A plastic bag was then placed over Suzanne's head. Glynn was repeatedly hitting Suzanne in the head, while her supposed friends, Jean and Bernadette, kicked her as she lay curled up on the floor. Oh my gosh. Yeah, awful. Both women then took turns beating Suzanne with a one metre long wooden instrument and a belt. Oh, oh my gosh. Some more trigger warnings now, because there's some graphic torture coming up. I swear, like, my episodes normally don't have this many trigger warnings because I'm way too squeamish for this sort of thing normally. 
this poor girl, she's walked into this situation not knowing why this is happening and oh, I just feel for her so much already. Yeah, it's awful to think about, but she was probably, in her mind, just heading to spend some time with her friends. Yeah, exactly. And now before you know it, she's been humiliated, beaten, and it's just the start as well, that's the worst part. Yeah. Suzanne was taken to the bathroom. Already humiliated by having her head and eyebrows shaved, she was forced to shave her own pubic hair. Supposedly this was retribution for causing Bernadette and Anthony Dudson to shave theirs after they contracted the pubic lice. It's just so hard to comprehend how how this was like even thought of and yeah. decided as a group. There are four people in this involved in this right now. Yeah. And none of them have stopped it. None of them have stopped it. Why don't they just sort out the lice and move on with their life? You know, it's nothing to do with Suzanne at this point. But I don't know why they're putting the blame on her. I suppose I meant you you did mention that they were already kind of targeting her and bullying her and this is such a strange case. Also already it feels like the punishment does not fit the crime. <sighs> even I don't believe Suzanne for a second was the one responsible for the pubic lice, but even if she definitely was, this is already a complete crazy overreaction. Yeah, absolutely. And already it makes you wonder how these people are able to do this. I suspect there's already an element of deindividualization where they're not truly reflecting on their own actions because they're acting as part of a group. Yeah, yeah, I wonder. After everything that unfolded, they then locked Suzanne in a cupboard and left her overnight. Now, let's not forget, Bernadette's children are in this home <gasps> and so are Jean's. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, my gosh. These poor children. I couldn't confirm, but I assumed that they were in the house while the attack unfolded, and they were definitely in the house while Suzanne was locked in the cupboard. These children spent their night listening to Suzanne, locked in a cupboard, sobbing and tending to her wounds. Oh. Oh, dear. Jean and Bernadette decided the next day that they'd rather their children not listen to them torture a friend. So they decided to move Suzanne to a home a few doors away that was actually Bernadette's previous abode. So I actually like couldn't fully wrap my head around this, but it sounds like Bernadette was living a few doors down before she moved in with Jean Powell. And it sounds like she must have continued to be a tenant in the previous house and just not used it so that's why they moved Suzanne there okay. and decided to keep her there right at the new house a bed was turned upside down so the four bed legs pointed towards the ceiling each of Suzanne's limbs were then tied to each bed leg using electrical cable oh my gosh over the following five days Suzanne was subject to horrendous attacks and torture as time went on, the attacks grew in severity as the group continued to take things up a notch. The torture even went beyond just the physical. Suzanne was beaten, burnt, gagged and more. But the group even added in horrible mental torture, like some kind of fictional war prison. Headphones were placed on Suzanne and she was forced to listen to rave music at max volume for hours. Bernadette would even ceremoniously begin each torture session with the same phrase, Chucky's coming to play. 
which apparently comes from a film I'm not acquainted with. Chucky is um a it's a horror movie, right? With the the ginger kind of like doll Chucky, and he has like yeah. a knife, and he's really creepy and really horrible. And yeah, it would have been from that because he says, "Yeah, Chucky's coming to play." Oh, Awful. it's horrible. And many believe this weird obsession with the film indicates just how detached from reality the amphetamines had made Bernadette. Yeah. Jean, who's one of the other people involved in this torture, even said that Bernadette coming in and saying that used to disturb her too. Mm. Jean Powell's brother, Clifford Pook, and another man that purchased amphetamines from Powell, called Jeffrey Lee, also showed up at the house. Massive trigger warning here, guys, like really big, because this is awful. Suzanne had been lying in her own waist for days when Clifford Pook and Geoffrey Lee arrived. Instead of rescuing her, the two men placed her in a bath containing concentrated disinfectant. <gasps> oh my gosh. This bit might be a bit too much, I'm only to edit this part out, but... Because it's hard to compute that humans can actually do this, but... The two men then used a brush to scrub off some of Suzanne's skin. Oh my goodness. It just, it's so hard to fathom that humans can do this. And it also, it, it confuses me how people, maybe they just associate with like-minded people, but to get such a big group, this group's growing and all of these people seem to get on board with it. And no one kind of questions that this is just horrific and so wrong. It's so, that's, it's like pack, pack mentality sort of thing. It's, yeah, it's really hard to believe that this is possible. And even kind of crazily, two of the men actually, while Suzanne Kappa was tied up and being tortured, had helped her brother-in-law fix his car. So it's not even that they were completely detached from reality. They were literally conversing and spending time with someone meaningful in Suzanne's life while then heading back to a house where they continued to torture her. Oh, that's like another level. When you hear about cases like that where you know they get on with their day-to-day life whilst something horrific's going on in the background, like that's another, another level. Like Their brains... Oh. How can you do this? I literally don't understand. Jean Powell's brother, Clifford Pook, then took a pair of pliers to Suzanne Kappa's teeth. What? I'm only because I'm looking at my notes now and I'm thinking about the pictures I've looked at for this case and what Clifford Pook looks like. And he really does look just like a normal young lad. And it's hard to believe. Yeah. Other than Glyn Powell, who was ugly as fuck, the rest of them actually just look like fairly run-of-the-mill young people. Normal. It's that's really a, hard. That's like imagine. a really spooky kind of like eerie element, I think, that it makes you wonder, you know, when you're walking down the street, all these people, you wonder, they, don't they say that you walk past like 10 murderers in your life or something ridiculous, but you never realise, and like you just walk past them because you don't know their history. And that always, like, throws me off, like, how you could be walking past some evil people and you just have no idea, you don't realise. Yeah, possibly. Because to look at him, he does not look like the sort of person that can take a pair of pliers and pull out the teeth of a person he considered a friend. But yeah, he, that's what he did. 
Suzanne's front two teeth were removed as Pook laughed and heckled his victim. Anthony Dudson's even got some quotes of this scene, and bearing in mind what I've already managed to push through and describe, I can't read out Anthony Dudson's quote. It's that horrendous. Oh my gosh. Okay. It genuinely sounded like a over-the-top scene from like a gory movie, so it's unfathomable to think that it actually happened. Another teenager entered the scene. An 18-year-old called David Hill was asked to house-sit. In the eventual trial, he told the court how he refused to help Suzanne despite her pleas. He described arriving to the room in the trial as, quote, She had some kind of cloth over her face from just above her eyebrows to below her nose, and she had no hair. Oh my god. Supposedly David Hill had discovered Suzanne when he heard someone's voice shouting while he was in a different room. When he arrived into the room where Suzanne was kept, he told her his name. And Suzanne asked if the teenager could help rescue her, but he told her he couldn't. When asked why he didn't seize the opportunity to rescue Suzanne, David said this. If I had said something, they would have all got me, wouldn't they? I just didn't know what to do. And he's a teenager too, right? So 18-year-old, yeah. Awful. I mean, may, there was maybe an element of shock. Yeah. But I'm assuming if this guy, David Hill, has any morality, he's probably been thinking about his lack of action on that day ever since. Oh, I, I would hope so. I think, like you said, there's shock. There's the fact that he's associating with people that can do this to someone. Like, he would be realising how evil these people are and like he said was scared that this might then happen to him but nonetheless like you know go to the police get protection all of this but, yeah oh. really should have gone straight to the police yeah but hey this sounds like it must have been a pretty terrifying group so for sure but yeah a clear missed opportunity for Suzanne to be rescued now I'm not sure if you've been keeping count but there are six primary attackers at this point. You've got Jean Powell, the ex-babysitter and friend of Suzanne Capper. You've got Bernadette McNeely, the housemate of Jean Powell. You've got Glyn Powell, Jean's ex-husband. Anthony Dudson, Bernadette's 16-year-old boyfriend. Clifford Pook, the brother of Jean Powell. And Jeffrey Lee, who used to purchase drugs from Jean and Bernadette. Some believe that the removal of Suzanne's front teeth was a sign that the group had already decided they were going to kill her. By removing her teeth, they believed it would make her body harder to identify. Oh my gosh, so yeah, premeditated. They had heard that Suzanne's family were going to report her as a missing person. I'm a little surprised they hadn't done this already. However, her mother supposedly assumed she was safe with her stepdad for the duration of the attack. And perhaps, based on the truancy from school, extended periods outside of her home were not uncommon for Suzanne, so her stepdad had not acted previously. Oh, yeah, of course. That's such a shame that it wasn't so out of the ordinary for her to be missing for a few days or going to a friend's house, missing school. So the behaviour may not have been... Like, they may not have realised as as quick as they should, maybe should have done had she had been like very much going to school every day or more present 
such a shame. Yeah, really is. In the early hours of the 14th of December 1992, Suzanne was forced into the boot of a stolen Fiat Panda. The group apparently giggled as they made the journey. When they arrived to their destination, Suzanne was pushed down an embankment and doused in petrol. Oh my gosh. Despite some initial difficulty, the group successfully lit Suzanne on fire. <gasps> Bernadette, who at this point I feel epitomises evil, sang, Burn, baby, burn, <gasps> as if this was some kind of jovial celebration. Oh my gosh. What the hell? What the hell indeed. <sighs> Assuming that, also, I swear we haven't done an episode this intense for ages. This is really hard to get through. We really haven't. We've been, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying. You're doing your best. You're, you're doing very well, Greg. Yeah. Thank you. The group assumed that Suzanne was dead and they returned to Jean's home. They even had the wherewithal to just casually buy some cans on their way home, <gasps> as if they'd just been coming back from a casual trip. Suzanne, however, was not dead. She had other ideas and managed to summon the strength to ensure her attackers were not to go unpunished, despite 75% of her body being covered in burns. The strength and bravery mm. of her. Oh my goodness, like, I don't, oh, this, this case. <laughs> Somehow, Suzanne clambered out of the embankment and staggered along the lane for a quarter of a mile. At ten past six in the morning, Barry Sutcliffe and two colleagues on their morning commute found Suzanne on the roads. They took her to a nearby house and made the residents call for an ambulance. One of the residents of that home had this to say about Suzanne's state. This is a quote. Both her hands appeared like ash. Her legs were just like raw meats, and her feet appeared to be badly charred. I was struck by how polite the victim was. She was constantly thanking my wife for her assistance. Oh, oh my gosh. The other resident, the wife, also had this quote. I instinctively went to put my arms around her, but she pulled away because she could not bear to be touched. Her head was shaved, and there were recent, not new, cuts to her head. Her face was almost featureless. Her hands were red raw and black at the fingertips. Her legs were red from top to bottom. She couldn't bear anything near her legs. Suzanne was rushed to hospital, where she was somehow able to give the name of her six attackers. Then she fell into a coma that she never awoke from passing away on the 18th of December, 1992. Oh, poor girl. So poor, but I mean, unbelievable really that she survived long enough to be able to name those six monsters. So the strength, wow. Yeah, you just can't comprehend. What's actually quite crazy to me is that apparently the lead detective initially thought that what had actually happened was that Suzanne had had a fight with a boyfriend and then lit herself on fire. What? Yeah. He thought that that was but, a reasonable thing that might have happened. Yeah, yeah. The quote was kind of crazy. I didn't put it in. I can't remember why I decided not to now. But the, I was like, what the fuck? Because he 
was like, yeah, it's not uncommon for these young women to have a fight and then cause themselves harm. Set themselves on fire. Yeah, exactly. I was like, is that normal? Was it the <laughs> 90s? That wild? But then he said that as soon as they went to the house that was mentioned, they, thank God, realised straight away that, yeah, this everything she was saying was true. Yeah. But, I mean, I suppose from the... The details of this case are so fucking crazy that maybe he was just like, there's no way this is real. Mm. Six people doing this to one person? Yeah. So shocking. That was the truth. Suzanne's burns and injuries were so extensive that her mother and stepfather were not able to recognise her. (gasps) Suzanne's grit and determination was instrumental in ensuring that all of her victims were apprehended and charged. Supposedly, Jean and Bernadette laughed and joked with one another as they were arrested. It's like this group were living in a fancy land. It reminds me of Joanna Dunahay laughing Mm. as she was being charged. Yeah. She was almost proud. Yeah, crazy mindset. Despite all six initially holding firm on them not being involved, the youngest assailant, Anthony Dudson, began to talk after being urged by his father to tell the truth. The stories, so severe, were enough to drive police officers to tears as they had to wrap their heads around what had taken place. All six attackers went to trial, and all of them were charged with murder, along with other charges such as false imprisonment and conspiracy to commit GBH. Good. The four ringleaders, Bernadette McNally, Jean Powell, Anthony Dudson, and Glyn Powell, were all convicted of Suzanne's murder, false imprisonment, and conspiracy to cause bodily harm. The two other men, Geoffrey Lee and Clifford Pook, were both charged with false imprisonment and Pook was charged with conspiracy to commit GBH. All six of these individuals were judged to be perfectly sane, which is terrifying in itself. <gasps> what? They might have been psychopathic, but okay. I think they, they didn't have like any diagnosable mental disorder, like schizophrenia or something that normally might be used for an insanity plea. Yeah. I also find... It fascinating that the group seemed to have the two women as ringleaders. That certainly feels like an unusual dynamic to me. Definitely. It's sort of unheard of, really. Well, it's not as common anyway that like women are taking the forefront of this. Ugh. Yeah, especially in a gang like this one. Scary. Before we close off this case, I want to leave you with the uncomfortable facts about how many of these evil killers remain behind bars. Only three of the group are still in prison. Jean, and Glyn Powell, and Anthony Dudson. Somehow, Bernadette McNally has been released early. The parole board said this was because she had an exceptional record. I don't care whether she has an exceptional record. You know? If she was able to do this, or even witness this, and let it go on for seven days, seven, eight days, she should not be coming out of prison. I wouldn't trust her on the streets, like... No. Yeah, nor me. Also, she was like the key coordinator from my perspective, manipulating yeah. everyone into believing that Suzanne had brought this <gasps> STI into the house. and Yeah. Also, you know, singing songs while he lit her body on fire and 
this is not a person you really want out on the streets, personally. No, she seemed like the worst one, really. Indeed. But like I said, it was supposedly because she has an exceptional record, but she'd also had an affair with a married prison warden while in the prison, which to me doesn't seem like a great record. No, that's wild. She's also selling drugs and all of the other criminal activity that's going on in their house as well. Like, yeah, exactly. Regardless of all of the murder, torture and brutality. Also, I can't believe that this married prison warden has had an affair with her. I, I've seen a picture of her since she's come out. She doesn't <laughs> look like someone at a break of marriage. <laughs> oh, dear. She's not, not like a beautiful woman at all. Uh, oh. Maybe this was a long time ago. I don't know. But I think possibly points towards how manipulative she is. Yeah. The other two men... Pook and Lee spent eight and five years in prison, respectively. Five, eight and five years? This is Nothing. two people that have put someone in a, what is effectively a vat of acids, and it's shocking that they have spent such little time in prison. You get more time for lesser crimes that hasn't, you know, crimes that haven't hurt anyone, or, you know, they're, they're crimes in themselves, but there's no direct violence. Like, that's just... It's baffling. Yeah, unbelievable. The other three attackers remain behind bars. Before we end the episode, let me at least put a little bit of positivity and let's leave on a quote from Suzanne's mother. Suzanne was very forgiving, but she was also a girl who would try to sort out her problems on her own. And that's what she did in the end. She survived her ideal long enough to name every single one of them but she will only have justice if those murderers remain in prison. Wow. And that is the case of Suzanne Kappa. Oh, that one's a heavy one, isn't it? (laughs) It's a heavy one for a Sunday morning. (laughs) Yeah. What a strong, strong girl. Like, to be able to name them all, it's incredible, because had they not found her, had they not known their identity, this, this case may have taken a lot longer to solve or if been solved at all so wow monsters yeah we could easily be talking about a mystery unsolved murder this morning if she hadn't had the strength to really uh go and name her attackers yeah and it's hard to think that this would ever have come out if not oh my gosh wow yeah they're evil, evil monsters. The fact that people can do this is insane. Unbelievable. Thank you very much for doing this case, Greg. You did very well. Like <laughs> It must have been tough on your end, researching this. Because when we do our notes, obviously, we filter what we put in and what we'd like to include. And when you're researching, you do end up getting all the details and sometimes stumble across pictures that are very distressing. So... You did, you did very well. Thank you. Thank you. And well done everyone that's made it this far. Yeah. Bad with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, do you want to share the social medias? Yeah, sure. So you can send in your own true crime or paranormal stories to our email address, goranguiltypodcast at gmail.com. You can also share them and case suggestions on our website, www.goranguiltypodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram where we'll be sharing pictures from the case. 
interacting with you guys, asking you questions uh, on our Instagram at Growing Guilty Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter as well at Gore and Guilty. And remember, we won't judge if Gore is your guilty pleasure. Thank you very Thanks much for all. listening. Bye.